Welcome to the perfect place to fight off those midwinter blues. If you have seasonal affective disorder and are sad, then you have found the perfect place, your dopamine hit of the week. Back together again, and how sweet it is. Welcome again to Twice the Lutheran. I'm your host, as always, Pastor Wells, with two L's, because I, not one and a half, not one and three quarter, twice the Lutheran. We have been making some good progress, my friends. We are in the triple digits for page number in our catechism. We have made it all the way to page 103. Thanks to those of you who have reached out to me to say hello. I have a listener question of the week. Maybe I should start doing that. Maybe I should have a listener question of the week every week. I want to hear from you, not about the podcast. I think we've kind of got our thing going here, and we're doing pretty well. For those of you who go to church and go to a Bible class, and I realize that might not be all the listeners, and that's perfectly okay for now. Glad to have you. But here's your question. Do you go to a Bible class? And if not, why not? And if you do go to a Bible class... What do you like about Bible class? What don't you like? What could be better? What sorts of topics or books of the Bible would you like to study? This is your chance without fear of any repercussions to talk to a pastor about what you like or don't like about Bible class. I want to hear from you, and your feedback will be incorporated into my Bible classes, if it's good feedback. If your feedback is garbage, then I'm not going to incorporate it. (laughs) Let's press on into our catechism. We have gotten to a point. Oh, by the way, before I move from that point, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. That is the email you can uh, answer that question at, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Let's get into our catechism. We are all the way at the end of the commandments. We have made it through commandments 1 through 8. And you'd say, well, Pastor Wells, there are 10 commandments and we've only done 8. How can you say we are at the end of the commandments? Well, because we typically will combine commandments 9 and 10 together, as we will do On this episode of Twice the Lutheran, we will combine commandments 9 and 10. Why? Because they are so similar. Both commandments are coveting commandments. And for that reason, we can cover coveting in one swell foop or fell swoop, whichever you prefer. I prefer fell swoop myself. Page 103, here's the ninth and 10th commandments. I'll read them and their meanings back to back. The ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or obtain it by a show of right. 
but do all we can to help him keep it. That kind of reminds us of Commandment 8, right? Uh, uh, No, wait, which one? Commandment 7? Is that the one where it's uh, do all we can to help him improve and protect his property and means of income? Yeah, that's 7. So here we have it, do all we can to help him keep it, his house and his inheritance. And then the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not force or entice away our neighbor's spouse, workers, or animals, but urge them to stay and do their duty. That always puts a little funny image in my mind of like my neighbor's dog or something wandering onto my property and saying, no, no, go back, little puppy. Go back and do your duty. Go go back to your master. <laughs> All right. Coveting is a matter of what is going on in your heart. And in this 10th commandment, it's a little bit different than the ninth commandment, right? Wanting and coveting your neighbor's house and his, and his property or his inheritance is a little bit different than uh, coveting, I'm going to say it this way, his people or his lifestyle, the things that God gave to them, to him, to your neighbor, to her. And so we're forbidden here from looking at the things and the people that belong to our neighbor and then having such a desire that we are tempted to try and get them. All right, that's kind of what we're covering here. All right, page 103, question number 91. Ooh, we're almost in the triple digits for questions too. Woohoo! To covet, here's what it says. To covet means to have a sinful desire or craving in our hearts for something God hasn't given us. The ninth commandment points to our neighbor's house and property. The tenth commandment points especially to those people who bring blessings to our neighbor's life and occupation. So what does God forbid in these two commandments? First, I want to point something out in the catechism. To covet means to have a sinful desire. Is it wrong to want things? No, of course not. It's not wrong to want things. In fact, the Bible kind of expects that there are things that you want and that you should want. I want heaven, right? That's a thing I want. That's a place I want to go. I desire that. Young men, if you're listening, you desire a wife. Well, that's a good godly desire. God, in a lot of cases, wants you to have the desires of your heart. But in these commandments, we're talking about sinful desire, wanting something that you shouldn't have. So in the case of a young man, it's good to want a wife. It's not good to want a woman who's already married. That is somebody else's wife, right? That's a sinful desire. So how do you know what is sinful for you to want and what's okay for you to want? Well, again, go back to commandments one through eight. God makes pretty clear in those commandments what are things that are okay for you to want and what are things that are not okay for you to want. Now, sometimes it's kind of hard to decipher that. Sometimes we don't even know what we want. And in those cases, you should be found in prayer and asking the Lord to better sharpen up and reveal to you the desires of your heart because the Lord can do that. 
He can help you to want the right things, and he can help you to stop wanting the wrong things. Okay, back to this commandment. Here's a passage for you, Micah Micah 2, 1 and 2. Woe to those who plan wickedness. They covet fields and seize them. They covet houses and take them away. They deprive a person of his house and a man of his inheritance. So what would be an example of that? Well, if you ever get a chance, and maybe you're already aware of this, look up some of these like squatters laws. They're in a lot of countries. Uh, they're in the United States too. This is a really unique thing, and it's really a kind of a criminal thing if you're if you're asking me. Where if you, I, I even read one. I think it was in like Great Britain. Um, a guy goes on a vacation, or he's away from home for like eight weeks, right? So like two months, he's not there. And in the time that he was gone, somebody just walks onto his property and starts living in his house. No rental agreement. No, no permission to be there. And after a certain amount of time of being there, the government says, well, this person now has squatter's rights. I even saw one recently. I think it was out of England or the U.K. Somebody look it up and tell me. So the guy loses his house to squatters, and then the squatter turns around and sells the house for like $500,000 or pounds or whatever and keeps the money. In fact, in a lot of times, the government won't even let you kick the person out of your house. Well, no, they, they moved in. That's their house now. You tell me, is that right? Is that right? A house that you bought and paid for, a house that you work for, somebody can just wander in and now it's theirs? So what happens in society when that is the case? Why does anybody work for anything at that point? Why would you work for a house? Just walk in and take one. Of course, you wouldn't do that, and neither would I. Because that is taking somebody's property in a way that is not God-pleasing. So Micah says, the person like that, woe to those who plan wickedness. They covet fields and seize them. Oh, my field now. This is my spot now. They covet houses and take them away. And what do they do in all that? They deprive a person of his house and a man of his inheritance. Luke 20, 40 and 46. Uh, Luke 20, 46 and 47, rather. Beware of the experts in the law who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces. They devour widows' houses and offer long prayers to look good. So these sort of religious leaders that are making a flashy show of being a religious leader and tricking old ladies into sending in all their money, and all of a sudden they've devoured a widow's house. No one there to watch over her, and so she falls prey. Isaiah 5.8, Woe to you who join house to house, who connect field to field, until there's no room left except room for you alone to live in the middle of the land. Remember that uh, when, when the Israelites get into the promised land, there's very specific laws that go with the land. So their promise, God owns all the land, right? God can do whatever he wants with land. And he decided that he was going to give the promised land to the Israelites. 
And so, of course, he guides them into the land. And then when they get there, and this would be in the book of Joshua, I think. Yeah, Joshua. The land is divided, but there's very specific rules. So it's supposed to be a picture of heaven. And when you get your allotment of the land, you can't, if you sell it, you're supposed to get it back on the year of Jubilee. So you can't permanently sell your land. It's supposed to always belong to you. No one is supposed to connect field to field. So you're not supposed to own two contiguous pieces of property because the Lord knows that the human heart wants to have all of the things just for themselves. And so he warns here in Isaiah, Woe to you who join house to house, who connect field to field until there's no room left. So there's one landowner. He owns all the, all the fields. He owns all the property. And where's everyone else supposed to live? Well, not his problem, right? He's got, he's got 150,000 acres. What does he care? You can live in a tent. You can live in the ditch. Well, is that right? Is that right? And you'd say, well, it's legal. I, I get it. It's legal. Is it right? A lot of the stuff this commandment forbids, by the way, is legal. But it doesn't make it right. And even if you're able to get away with it for a time, you win the you win the court case or whatever. You might be able to get away with it, in fact, for your whole life. But finally, at the very end of time, God the judge now will relitigate the case. Good luck on that day. Couple other examples. Joshua seven, one through ten. Achan had a sinful desire to take the spoils of war that were supposed to be dedicated and given to God. I think that was, uh, they figured that one out because I think they lose at the Battle of Ai, right? You know, somebody looked that one up. Joshua 7 is where that one happens. Matthew 14. Oh, they lose the battle, by the way, because somebody had sinned against God. And, of course, if you read the story, what do the people do right away? We lost the battle. We weren't supposed to lose. God fights for us. He said we wouldn't lose. God, you let us down. They blame God right away. <laughs> God's like, what are you talking about? You know that I don't let you down. You guys let me down. Somebody out there has sinned, and now you're going to discover who it was and deal with it. Matthew 14, 3 and 4, Herod had taken his brother's wife for himself. So the commandment for coveting against coveting is very closely related to the commandment, uh, uh, the sixth commandment, not committing adultery, can also be related to the seventh commandment of not stealing. Because if you want a wife that's not yours... There you go. You're being greedy, you're coveting, and that'll lead you to break the Sixth Commandment, potentially. We'll talk about that more, the progression of sin. Second Samuel 15, Absalom covered, coveted his father's kingdom and tried to take it away from David by turning the people against him. There again, who is the rightful king? David was. Who made David king? God did. But Absalom, if you remember the story, he wants to be king. He wants all the power for himself. And so he knows he's got to win the people over. And so he would stand outside the city gate, and as people come, he would be, like, overly friendly. And then he'd hear what their complaints and their needs were. And then he'd say, well, you know, if if only there was a king here to listen to you. I mean, if I was king, boy, I'd take care of you. And so the people are kind of duped into thinking David's nowhere to be found. David doesn't know that people are coming in this case. 
and they're duped into thinking, well, Absalom, he, he, well, he'd take way better care of us than David ever did. And so he has the rebellion there. And it, it doesn't go well for Absalom, let's just say. I mean, finally, it doesn't go well for all of Israel. The Lord gives the kingdom back. And then finally, how about 1 Kings 21, 1 through 16? All of these are parentheticals, by the way. Jezebel devised a devious plan. Well done, authors of the catechism. <laughs> I like that. Devised a devious plan. <laughs> Jezebel, de- that was dumb. Jezebel devised a devious plan to get Naboth's vineyard by a show of right, arguing it in court. How often hasn't that happened? You see that happen in families all the time. Somebody dies, you know, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa die, and they leave an inheritance, and all of a sudden everybody comes out of the woodwork, and rather than thanking God for the piece of the inheritance that they might receive as a gift from grandma and grandpa, from mom and dad, what do they start doing right away? Fighting over it, trying to get a bigger a bigger chunk of it. And, and a lot of families go so far as to, you know, make accusation and, and ridicule and then go to court and try and argue their case. So what are they doing? They're trying to rob their brothers and sisters or other family members out of the inheritance that otherwise would go to them. And what happens if you win the court case? Did that make it right? Of course not. Did that make it legal? Well, maybe. Maybe sometimes, but that doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it right. All right, in the Catechism, here on page 104, there's this little section called A Closer Look. Here's what it says. The explanation to the Ninth Commandment says that we should not obtain our neighbor's property by a show of right. What does that mean? Show of right means that someone tries to get someone else's property in a way that may appear legal but is really not ethical or the right thing to do. Again, there is a big difference between right and legal. All right, I'm going to pause here for a second. Here's a couple of comments on the law as a whole, not just the ninth and 10th commandment, but all of the commandments, really. The law is spiritual in nature. That is to say, it's aimed at the spiritual you. It's aimed at the heart. So the so God's law is unique in that. Man's law. So think of the laws that you encounter. Um, think of the laws that you encounter on a day to day basis. If you're listening to this in your car and you're driving to work or whatever, you are no doubt obeying the speed limit. Or are you? Huh? Check the speedometer. Use that cruise control. <laughs> If you're traveling to work, you know that you are you have traffic law that you need to follow. The state does not care if you like the traffic law or not. So let's say you get pulled over for speeding, and you get a ticket, and you go to court, and the court and the judge says, "Why why were you speeding or whatever?" Well, I don't like the law. Well, we don't care if you don't like it; you need to obey it. So the law is aimed at getting outward compliance in that case. And by the way, if you're outwardly compliant to the law, but you don't like the law, you grumble and complain against it, have you broken the law? No, of course not. That would be stupid, right? 
if you could go to jail for not liking the speed limit, <laughs> I mean, that would be just foolish, right? God's law is different. God's law is aimed at the heart. It's not just aimed at outward compliance. Yes, that is a component. But you haven't fulfilled the law if you have outwardly complied but inwardly complained. How do you like that? That sounds pretty smart, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'm a smart guy. (laughs) If you outwardly comply but inwardly complain, guess what? You've broken the law. God's law goes deeper. Jesus pointed that out, by the way, in his Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes sound beautiful. Maybe that's why we call them the Beatitudes. They sound beautiful. (laughs) But the reality is they're all law. There's not a lick of good news, really, in the Beatitudes. It's all law. Remember, the law tells you what to do, right? It commands you. So Jesus says things in the Beatitudes like, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder. Well, yeah, we've heard it said by you, Lord. (laughs) It's the seventh commandment, you shall not murder. And then he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her her in his heart. So he shows us that the law is aimed at the heart. You cannot say you've kept the the sixth commandment just by keeping yourself away from adultery. Jesus says, well, you've broken that in your heart already. And now this is how deep and complicated, this is how condemned we are really by God's law. Because God's law, again, is not just about outward compliance. It's about inward motivation too. So that even if you would comply, even if you could say, I've never killed anybody, seventh commandment, but you're angry with them in your heart, remember Jesus said, call your brother a fool, you've then broken the seventh commandment. That's how deep God's law goes. So it is here. The ninth and 10th commandments really point that out. It's not enough to be outwardly compliant if you are inwardly complaining. It's not enough to be outwardly compliant if there is sickness and sin in the heart. If there is still a coveting there, you are sinning against the law of God. Which shows you the height of Jesus' work for you and his love for you. The fact that Jesus never sinned against God's law means that in his heart and in his mind, he was perfectly compliant. He was perfectly happy to live according to God's law. And then goes to the cross. And all that work, all that work of being outwardly and inwardly compliant to God's law, all that work is taken away from him and given to you. And he dies as if he didn't do any of it. Now, of course, he conquers death, right? He doesn't stay dead. Which shows you the height of God's love for you. That the perfect compliance of Jesus, both outwardly and inwardly, was handed to you. So that God would see that you are now outwardly and inwardly compliant because of Christ. An an astonishing reversal has taken place here. 
All right, let's let's press on a little bit more. Back into the Catechism, page 104. By giving two commands that address coveting, God impresses upon us that even if we haven't actually stolen anything, a sinful desire to have something that is not ours is wrong. So how do the ninth and 10th commandments serve as a mirror unmasking the sin of coveting within our hearts? All right, what's the unmasking of sin? Romans 7. I would not have recognized sin except through the law. For example, I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity provided by this commandment, produced every kind of sinful desire in me. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Which makes it sound like an awful lot of a bad thing to have God's law. If apart from the law, sin is dead, then take away the law. False. Fulfill the law, and you kill sin. Apart from the law. Meaning if you fulfill the law, you don't need the law anymore because it's fulfilled. You don't need it written down. You don't need the rules, right? It's fulfilled in your heart. You live according to it, which means you're apart from the law. There is no sin. So Paul is saying that natural, the natural response of our sinful nature when we hear the rules is to break the rules, right? We've never met a rule that as sinful people we haven't been excited to break. And so the ninth and 10th commandments show us Coveting is a bad thing. And we go, what's coveting? Wanting something you're not supposed to have? Oh, uh, I've done that. Right. See, the law has shown you your sin now. Oh, I didn't know that was a sin. Well, now you do. There, the law showed you. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge them into complete destruction and utter ruin. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That passage has been abused and misunderstood lots and lots. That People say the money is the root of all evil. No, that is not what the passage says. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And then Paul says, by striving for money, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Well, why would you do that? Because some people become sinfully convinced that God is the one that's holding out on me. Some people become sinfully convinced that I should have more money than God has given me. So therefore, if I walk away from God, I will get the money I think I'm owed. And you know what's terrifying? Sometimes people get lots of money. Mm -hmm, They do, walking away from God. Sometimes the punishment for sin is getting exactly what you wanted. And that's why Paul says they've wandered away from the faith to go get the money that they didn't think God was going to give them and have pierced themselves with many pains. Because if you are chasing money, if that's really all your heart desires, is there anything that's going to stop you morally, let's say? And do you think you can really twist God's law over and over and ignore it and trample on it without being pierced by some sort of grief and pain? 
Of course you will. Think about the person that you know of that's just always chasing money. Always talking about it, always wanting more of it, always convinced that if I could just have more dollars, then I'd have less problems. How's their life going? What sorts of things do they do? Do they have a strong marriage from chasing money? Probably not, huh? How are the kids doing? Are the kids feeling well taken care of by the man who's chasing the money? Probably not, huh? Probably not. And how's the man himself doing? Is he content? Or is he always stressed, always running, always busy, trying to get more and more and more, prove my worth, get my cut, get my share, and steal it if I have to? Yeah, a lot of that's out there. Piercing yourself with many pains. Because finally, and my mom used to say this, some people are so rich, all they have is money. Yep. Some people, no, wait, did I say that wrong? Sorry, Mom. It's a smart saying, but I think I said it backwards. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. (laughs) I thought that was insightful. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. If you have only money, you don't have a whole lot. All right, Mark 7. In fact, from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual sins, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. What a list! Boy, if you found a fountain that spewed out all that nasty stuff, what would the fountain look like? Oh, wait, what's this? From within? Out of people's hearts? So now I want you knowing that, because God says this is where it comes from. From within, out of your heart. Excuse me, my voice just cracked. <laughs> I haven't had that happen in a while. From within, out of your heart. Come evil thoughts, sexual sins, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. But I thought we were supposed to follow our hearts. <laughs> I thought we were supposed to be true to our hearts. Well, your heart by nature is not worth following because this is what your heart by nature is full of. Nothing good. Nothing good. It also means that you can't point out into the world and say, all of you people made me do these things. All the other people out there pushed me in this direction. Even if there was not another soul on the planet and you were the only one left, still these sins would be there. Because the awful reality is they come out of our own hearts. I'm really good at tempting me. You are really good at tempting you. Your own heart wants to chase after this world. But the commandments show you that that is the case so that it would point you back to Jesus, so that it would restrain you. Back in the Catechism, page 105 now, these commandments, this is the summary for all those verses, these commandments convict us, exposing our sinful desires to have things God has not given to us. There is an underlying assumption here, and it's a very biblical, godly assumption. You shouldn't have everything you want. 
I know the world will tell you otherwise. I know the world will encourage you and entice you to chase it and to get more. It will tell you you deserve it. You should and can have everything you ever wanted. I guarantee you that if you listen to that bad advice, you will waste your life. As Paul said in 1 Timothy, you will be pierced with many pains. There are things God wants you to have, and there are things God does not want you to have. There are things that God wants other people to have that he doesn't want you to have, and vice versa. The idea that we should all have exactly the same things, well, that's a denial of the fact that God says otherwise. There are some things God has handed to you that he has not given to me. And there are some things he's handed to me that he has not given to you. Don't start looking across the aisle, so to speak. Don't start looking at the things that God gave to somebody else and saying, you know, God should have given me that. In fact, God, you made such a mistake here. I'm going to go get that thing. Aha. And now you have shown once again how the ninth and 10th commandment are connected just like all the other commandments back to the first commandment. In our house, if we got a whining kid, I've been given to tell the kids, whining is you telling God that he got it wrong. Isn't that finally what whining is? That's you telling God he got it wrong. God, you're so dumb that you gave me the wrong stuff. I need that guy's stuff, that kid's toys, that man's money, that guy's wife. God doesn't make mistakes like that, friends. The stuff he's given to you, he's given to you. Question 93, page 105, coveting is a sin. We want something that is not his will to give us. Coveting also leads to many other sins. How might coveting lead to other sins? Well, this is pretty obvious, right? But let's not leave it unsaid. James 1. Each person is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own desire, not by somebody else's. You have to admit, you are dragged away in temptation because you yourself want to be tempted. You yourself want to give in to temptation. That's why it's called temptation, because it's something we want And my sinful nature is convinced that it's something good. That's why temptation is so deadly. So James says, each person is tempted when he is dragged away, kidnapped almost, dragged away and enticed by his own desire. Ooh, that sounds good. Oh, I want that. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So this is the life cycle of sin, right? How does it start? It starts each sin, every sin starts in the heart, in the mind. That's where the seeds are planted. That is why it is so important that we are disciplined with our mind, that we are disciplined with our hearts, 
that we get into the habit of weeding out the bad thoughts. We get in the habit of weeding out the bad self-talk, all of these seeds that Satan plants in the garden of our mind. And we blame him because, of course, Garden of Eden. That's where temptation came from, Satan himself. So get into the habit of weeding the garden of your mind. Keep it fresh. Get the seeds out of there. And there's a lot that goes into that, right? Be careful what you're putting into your brain. Be careful what you're looking at, what you're listening to. Because some of them are seeds. Wicked, evil, nasty seeds. So James says you are tempted when you're dragged away and enticed by your own desire. You see something and go, ooh, that looks good. Ooh, she looks good. He looks good. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. If you haven't weeded it out of your mind, and you sit there and you entertain it, and you cultivate it, and you grow this temptation, and you soothe yourself with this temptation, it won't be long before you act on it, right? And that can be anything, right? If you've got a, a sordid history with alcohol, and in your mind you continue to, to think about the, the color and the taste. I shouldn't probably put too many adjectives into this for those of you who might be tempted by that kind of thing, right? But you sit there and you, and you, and you comfort yourself with the idea that, oh, maybe someday. Just wait for the time and get that drink. Wait for the time, meet that girl, meet that guy. Wait for the time, get that stuff on the screen, on the computer screen, on the phone screen that shouldn't be there, right? And now you're, now you're cultivating it carefully. You're planting, you've taken those sinful seeds, and now instead of weeding them out, you grow them, you grow them, you grow them. Then it gives birth to sin. If you are constantly looking for the opportunity to sin, guess what you're going to find? <laughs> you're going to find the opportunity, friend. If you're looking for the opportunity to drink, you're going to find it. If you're looking for the opportunity to break the sixth commandment with a person or with a screen, you're going to find it. If you're looking for the opportunity for the, that next pill, that next smoke, you're going to find it. And when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to a rip-roaring good time. Oh, no. Hey, wait a minute. I, I misread that. That's not what it says. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, which is almost a play on words. How can you give birth to death? Do you see the life cycle of sin? You need to weed it out, my friend. Stop entertaining it in your mind. Stop being around the people and the situations that tempt you to sin. In your mind, stop being in those situations and in those settings that make it so easy to covet, so easy to want. Get rid of the things that keep planting those wicked seeds in your heart and your mind, which lead you to covet. Because if you continue to cultivate, it will give birth to death. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. The sin will always claim a victim. Sometimes the victim is just you. Sometimes it's you and more. But there's always a victim of sin. 
because finally sin drags down to hell. Genesis 3.6, I, I referenced the Garden of Eden, and now here it is. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, ah, it was in the mind. It was in the heart. She was thinking about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve, this is, should not have been even anywhere near it, right? But she's sitting there and thinking about it. Well, already you got the sin right there in the heart and the mind. And that it was appealing to the eyes. Ooh, it looks good. And that it was desirable to make one wise. There's a lie, huh? Oh, doing this sin would be a good thing. Doing this sin would be desirable. Doing this sin would give way to a really good time. That's a lie. And so, of course, she took some of its fruit and ate. How could she do otherwise when you're sitting there coveting over the sin, drooling over the sin, drooling over that fruit that looked so good, even though there was a thousand other things to eat? Of course she gave away. Let's grab one more here. Uh, 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 17, and this is a parenthetical. This is a parenthetical. It's just David's sin of coveting Uriah's wife led to the sins of adultery and murder. So one sin leads to another. So David, who should have been out at war, 2 Samuel, wasn't being lazy, sitting at home, walking around on the roof of his palace because he's bored, because he's not doing what he should be doing, and he sees he sees Bathsheba. Oh, she looks good. Got to have her. Brings her into the house. Gets her pregnant. Uh-oh, now we got a problem. Now we now we got a we got a problem of the ninth and tenth commandments of coveting, really the tenth commandment, right? Coveting the neighbor's wife. Get her pregnant. Well, now we just broke the sixth commandment. But now we gotta cover up the sin, so we better get rid of the husband. Yeah, there goes the seventh commandment, right? Wait, did I say that right? <laughs> the seventh commandment? Do you ever get that mixed up? Isn't the fifth commandment you shall not murder? <laughs> He breaks the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. So one sin leads to another because David didn't weed it out of his mind. The same happens to you and me. All right, 94, question 94. And we will try to uh, close it out on this and finish the ninth and 10th commandments next week. How do we know that our sins against the ninth and 10th commandments have also been forgiven? So, of course, we look at the law as a, as a mirror. Here's how we've broken it. Now we go to Christ and see our forgiveness, and then when we come back again, we will talk about the law as a guide. What does this teach me how to live my life? So how do we know that our sins against the ninth and 10th commandments are also forgiven? Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That's Jesus, of course. To be tempted is not a sin. It leads to sin. But temptation itself is not a sin. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself was really tempted. For those days in the wilderness, that was a real trial. It was really severe. There was actual temptation, a few of which are recorded for us in the Scriptures. But he overcomes. 
So in all of that, when you are tempted, usually you sin right away because you're breaking that commandment in your mind, right? You're, you're doing the thing already in your mind if you haven't started doing it with your body yet. Jesus never crossed that line. So as he's tempted, he never sins in his mind. He never for a second inappropriately entertains or covets the very thing he's being tempted with. And now we go to Hebrews 4, and we get the comfort from that. Your high priest knows what it's like to be tempted. So he can sympathize with your weakness. Because he was tempted. Except one big difference between him and you, yet he was without sin. So do you picture God as somebody who is waiting around the corner, peeking over your shoulder and just waiting. As soon as you slip up, as soon as you inappropriately covet, (laughs) as opposed to appropriately covet, what does that mean? (laughs) Is God that kind of guy? Just waiting, I'm going to get him. Oh, you better, oh, you better not. Always giving you the side eye, always slapping your hand. Is that the kind of God you think of in your mind? Or... Is God to you, more appropriately, the one who helps you bear up under temptation? Because the first picture is a picture of somebody who is better than you, who doesn't even know what it's like to be tempted. But the second picture, that's a God who's been tempted and who sympathizes with you in your weakness. And so is not the guy watching over your shoulder just waiting to jump on you. It's the one who comes to help you lift the burden. It's the one who comes as a guide to pull you away from temptation to save your very soul. And of course there's this, 1 John 3, 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. I mean, just think about that. Think about what Jesus goes through in those 40 days in the wilderness, and he's tempted. And then he goes to the cross. Jesus should never have died. You understand that. He didn't have to die. He didn't sin. Death is a spiritual problem. Death comes because of sin. That's why I'm going to die. I'm sinful. That's why you're going to die. The day I am in my casket is the day that definitively proves that I am a sinful person. But Jesus, he never sinned. There was no death waiting for him. There was no consequences of sinfulness waiting for him because he never sinned. But he dies. He goes to the cross. He never sinned and never should have died, but he has a tomb. So where does he get the sin that killed him? Yours. Mine. The one who never had to die chooses to die. The one who, I don't know, from, I guess, a human logic standpoint, you'd say, I guess he would have just ascended into heaven without dying. But that's not what he did. He didn't leave behind an example 
for you to ascend straight into heaven and say, there, I did it. See you later. I'm going to go up into heaven because I never sinned. So good luck to all y'all. Try and do what I did. I'll see you if you make it. No one would. But he chose instead. He who never coveted dies on the cross as the one who was never contented. And we'll talk about contentment next week. So how do you know that your sins have been forgiven? How else would Jesus have died? He didn't have any sin of his own to die for. He dies for yours. He dies for mine. And in place hands to us the righteousness, hands to us the fulfillment of the law, so that we would never have to fear condemnation. Speaking of being contented, speaking of never coveting, don't covet more time here on this podcast today. That's enough for this week. (laughs) We'll be content with the time God has given us. And we will look forward to more time together next week. See you later, friends. Love you.